joker and a trainer, we can show you how to win. Will you be then? You belong, you belong, you belong, you belong to the Merry Marble Marching Society. March along, march along, march along to the song of the Merry Marble Marching Society. Hello everybody, and welcome to part 6 of A Marvelous Anniversary, a celebration of the Fire and Water podcast's 3rd anniversary and the 80th anniversary of Marvel Comics No. 1, originally published in 1939. I'm Max Romero, the host of Plasticast and The Mirror Factory, and I'm joined by special guest Ram Zimmerman. Welcome to the show, Ram. Thanks, thanks for having me, Max. Hey, happy to have you. If everyone's been listening to the previous episodes of this week-long celebration, you know that Marvel Comics No. 1 featured the first appearance of the original Fire and Water duo, the Human Torch, and the Submariner. The issue also featured appearances by the Angel, the Masked Rider, A Tale of Jungle Terror, Kazar, and Burning Rubber, a prose story about a dangerous day on the auto racing circuit. And Burning Rubber is what we'll be talking about in this episode. And I'm really glad you're here, Ram, because not only have we been friends for a long time, but you have some personal experience. You used to race motorcycles. I did for years and years uh, growing up, and uh, it has had a lasting impact on my life, actually, both good and bad. When did you start? I started, I think my first race officially would have been about 1982 when I was in my early teens, and then I raced all the way through college, and then I retired uh, at 23 due to the physical toll it was taking on me and just life got busy and there were other things to do than spend giant chunks of my time racing motorcycles. <laughs> but I loved it. I love, I was obsessed with it for sure. Yeah. Well, and you, you're still into motorcycles oh, now and everything, right? So yeah. Yeah. I mean, making it sound like it's a thing of the past. That's yeah. I was just in the garage, uh, <laughs> wiping down a vintage Ducati. So yeah, oh, it's nice. still definitely part of my, daily existence it's my dad started it uh he planted the seed when i was about four years old he came roaring up the driveway on a 72 norton combat and my mother figured out how to double belt me to him so that he could (laughs) ride around rural minnesota with me on the back at four and uh that that did it i was in i was just like let's do this yeah, it was it was a different time, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. Can you imagine what a highway patrol would do now if they saw a kid belted to an adult? <laughs> and your mom did it. I mean, she's like, "Okay, go ahead. You're you're fine." It was great thinking. The second belt, you got it. You got it. Well, the first belt's not big enough. We'll just use two. <laughs> and I do remember clearly that uh, it's not like the old man took it easy when I was back there. He he let it rip. I was always like, you know, let's go a hundred. Oh wow. So he Did he there. race also? He actually never raced, but he was my main pit crew over the years and a huge financial reason that I was able to do it. He supported me. So and this was the 80s. I mean, it was more, you know, it was expensive then. I mean, I don't know how anyone does it now. Right. Uh, the price of a motorcycle and all the equipment because I've recently actually sort of gotten back into the off-roading life a little bit. Uh because I got some property in rural Minnesota. Anyway, my brother and I are on this very nostalgic trip, and we bought antique three-wheelers. Oh, nice. So, um, and just the price of those at this point, and then the fuel and rebuying equipment, I was just like, wow. Right. I should thank my dad next time I talk to him. <laughs> so, so what kind of racing did you do? 
Well, I did motocross, which is that was uh, not the fancy stuff you see on TV, like in arenas. That's supercross. But uh, I wasn't ever that great at motocross. I could just kind of hang in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and hair scramble was sort of half motocross, half enduro. Uh, enduro is what I really focused on, and that is the equivalent of like a motorcycle marathon. So that would start in the early morning, and it would go anywhere from seventy miles to two hundred. And um, you were timed. You had to try to keep an average, and it was through mud, over logs, a lot of fast uh, open roads, uh, dirt roads, um, faster snowmobile-type trails uh, for people who are not from up north. There are a series of – there's an entire, like, second uh, infrastructure of off-road trails maintained for snowmobilers in the winter. And you – you, it was like golf. If you were, they would have checkpoints along the way, and you had to average a certain mile per hour, twenty-four, I believe it was. And uh, for every minute you were late, you'd lose a point, and so low score would oh, win. Okay. And so it wasn't the same pressure as motocross, where you had people like fifty bikes shooting for the first <laughs> corner. You know, it was like it was more about being able to go fast in many conditions all day long and just punish yourself until you could hardly you know, keep it on two wheels. <laughs> right. Right. You, you mentioned that there was, that you, there was good and bad with it. Was that, was that physical toll what you're talking about? Yes. I still have, uh, one of my broken helmets that I keep as a, uh, I don't know why I keep it. Cause <laughs> it's a talisman. But, yeah. yeah. I, I took some shots to the old melon, but I guess what I meant about the negative is just, even as an old guy riding around town on a bicycle, I you know, getting into situations where I'm injured and need help, I just get up and keep going. I was a motocrosser, and that's what you do. You just you don't show weakness yeah. or pain. You just get up and you keep on going. Right. <laughs> well, you, like I said, we've we've known each other for a while now, and I've heard the stories. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it always it always was like, oh my god, what did Ram do? Yes. Well, I mean, I was so into it as a kid that I literally. Uh, strapped my hip cast to the handlebar with a bungee cord oh, wow. so that I could continue to ride. Yeah. Well, what was it? Cause you also mentioned that there was good, I mean, there must've been some good for you to want to do that. Well, yeah. Cause I will go, I will get up and keep going no matter what. So I guess it's a good and a bad, Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, well he's, he's up, he's riding with broken bones, but you know, uh, it also could be like, well, maybe sometimes you do have to admit you're down and ask for help. <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, what, especially what, as I get older. <laughs> what, what was it that attracted you to racing in the first place? It was, uh, like I said, that experience with my dad. And also we were just like a motorhead family. We spent the summers in Silver Lake, Michigan, uh, which has a big sand dunes. And I just idolized all the guys that worked there. And that was my first job at 14. They just hired me to like do odd jobs around the shop. And I worshiped those guys like rock stars, man. They would win all the local like sand drag races and racing up a sand hill and that type of stuff. So I was uh, immediately introduced to it at a very young age. And my dad was really into the off-road drag racing and I was his pit crew for that. He taught me to like change tires and do a bunch of stuff when I was a kid. So it was just always there, and I I loved it. Do you still miss it? Uh, yes, but like I said, I you know uh, just a couple weeks ago I was up at the cabin with my brother ripping around on a 1985 Kawasaki Takati 250 two stroke that goes about 80. So it's still yeah. it's still 
<laughs> still doing it a little. Just not. I won't ever get out there officially again because the uh, what is the the cliche the the mind is willing but the body is weak. <laughs> the body is weak. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like it's just punishing, you know, on your on your body after a while. It is. I uh, I knocked my vision to the point where I could not. Uh, like one eye was seeing one direction and the other eye was seeing another direction. And that lasted for like 10 minutes. And I was by myself just laying in the woods waiting for, you know, for that to go away so I could ride back to the car. And I continued to try to proceed, but uh, luckily my dad was there and uh, called that off after I think I was not able to identify the amount of fingers he was holding up. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So were there ever moments where you actually caught yourself and said, what am I doing? Yes, but never in the heat of like during an actual official race that I know it makes it I, I'm just realizing as I'm saying this it just makes me sound like is there something missing? In my <laughs> and I think like and I, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I was great because I wasn't. I, I did fine. I had I, I moved up into the top class in Enduro and I won some races, but that was locally. So like at the top levels, the people that get nationally noticed or i mean i do think that i'm not saying there's something wrong with their brains but i think there (laughs) definitely has to be a wiring where you are during the heat of it you're not that isn't even like an option you think about you're just trying to be the fastest thing happening at that moment and you will just keep going and trying no matter what until you like physically can't i mean maybe during the recovery when you're laying there on the couch and it's week two and you know the concussion is so bad you can't you know can't get up and go to school or something like that then you might think well hmm, (laughs) maybe there's other things to do but i i think that it's just when it's wired into you as a kid you just got to do it i mean it's because there's a it's not even i mean winning's great sure but it's it's just like there's a feeling of just completing it and if you had a good day and things came together well and you, you feel like you executed, it's a it's a pretty intense adrenaline rush that's kind of hard to top. And I think you just sort of get addicted to that. Well, you know, that's a that's a, a good lead into our story. <laughs> that's kind of the crux of, of what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the story itself, let me give our listeners a little background about it. Burning Rubber was written by Raymond A. Gill and is accompanied by an illustration drawn by Sam Gilman. In spite of his work being in a historic Marvel comic, Ray Gill's comic book career ended in the Golden Age, and sadly, he seems to be nearly forgotten today. Gill would go on to write several angel stories in what would become Marvel Mystery Comics, and, according to the Lambia Comiclopedia, throughout the 1940s he wrote scripts for various timely and novelty comics features, co-creating Airman and Terry Vance. He also did the art for strips including Mighty Mouse, Super Rabbit, and at Archie Comics. By 1950, Gill was doing editorial work for Standing Publications and Fawcett before finally retiring a few years later. Artist Sam Gilman also started his career as a penciler and inker during the golden age of comics. Like a lot of people at the time, he put his career on hold to fight in the European theater during World War II. After he got back from the war, Gilman took a hard left and started an acting career. He started in New York theater, became friends with Marlon Brando, and would become a busy character actor who found steady work on TV. One of his most recognized claims to fame is his role as Doc Holliday in the Star Trek original series episode, Spectre of the Gun. Strangely enough, it was not the small illustration he did for Burning Rubber. Speaking of which, Ram, are you ready to strap in and take on this story? Sure. 
Then listeners, start your engines. And we're off. From Marvel Comics number one, Burning Rubber, a short, short story about the auto racetracks by Raymond Gill, with an illustration by Sam Gilman. The crowd roared with laughter. Bill Williams knew what they were laughing at, his coveted Bluebird. Compared to the other cars in the race, the Bluebird did look a bit shabby. But one thing was certain, there weren't any better mechanics or drivers than Bill and his able mechanic, Fred Turner. Everything ship-shaped, Bill. You know, I feel kind of sorry for those other mugs. I'd hate to lose a race if I spent a lot of dough on a two-ton chrome-plated model. Fine. Well, I don't know. I'd give a lot to dress my ladybird up here with a lot of new feathers. I don't give a hoot what the crowd thinks myself, but I just feel sorry for my laddie's sake. Cut it, fella. I think you did pretty well digging up the entry fee. After all, you spent plenty for parts for your new supercharger. Yep, that's our only hope now. Don't kid yourself that we have any cinch. We have the best drivers in the business here today. What's the matter with you today, Bill? I've never heard you talk like this before. You sound as though you've lost faith in our bluebird. No, not in your life. That's one thing I'll never do. I guess it got under my skin a little bit. Those people laughing at her, I mean. That's better. By the way, doesn't Anne ever complain about you spending so much time with your lady here? Yeah, she was kidding me the other night. Well, there goes the signal, Bill. Move over. Oh, uh, listen, old man. Let me take it alone this time. I don't know why I want to. I, well, humor me this once, will you? I know I'll feel a lot better if I get out there alone. Uh, sure, sure, Bill. Anything you say. Only, be careful. Bill shot ahead with a roar that surprised the smiling crowd that had gathered around to poke fun at the bluebird. He was hardly top on the line when the second starting signal was given. There were eight cars in the race beside the bluebird. The combined noise of dozens of unmuffled explosions thundered out into an increasing crescendo that thrilled some and annoyed others. To Bill it was sweet music, the powerful voice of his ladybird. Bill was in his glory. He could feel his whole body grow taut with a passionate desire to go faster, faster, faster. The stiffer his body grew, the harder his foot pressed the accelerator. He was setting the pace, the other cars directly behind him, weaving back and forth. He was at his perfect ease now. He felt that the ladybird was standing still and that the track was some never-ending ribbon that kept unfolding in front of him. He was in a new world, a world all his own. Anne. The girl was literally sitting on the edge of her seat as she watched the bluebird madly rush on in meaningless velocity. Or so it seemed to her. Hello, Anne. Enjoying the race? Fred, what are you doing up here? Why aren't you in there with Bill? Whoa, take it easy. He's just a bit moody, I guess. He wants to be alone. Oh, Fred. I always feel better when you're with him. If it's possible to feel good when he's throwing himself bodily into the face of fate. You shouldn't have let him take it out there alone. Well, it's too late now to do anything about that. Besides, there's something you can do to help Bill. That's why I came up here. Yes, Fred. You know I'll do anything for that grease monkey. That's the idea. Calm down. I don't know what it is that's got everybody keyed up today. We've all gone through these races before together. Yes, we have, Fred. But somehow I feel that today it's all got to end. One way or the other. And you know that we've spent a lot of time working on the Bluebird these last few months. We always work hard on her before a race, but this time we've done something more than that. We've perfected a new gas feeder. I know Bill wouldn't want me to tell you, but I feel that you have a right to know. Bill is in there right now, risking his life to test it. If it works, Bill will retire from the track. He told me so. If it fails, well... Fred, tell me. What if it doesn't work? What will happen? What can a gas feeder do that will possibly crack him up? Just this. That new feeder is mounted over the engine. It feeds with a combined force of gravity and pressure. 
if anything should go wrong, if it should spring the smallest leak, that hot motor will blow both him and the bluebird to kingdom come. Tell me quickly, Fred, what can I do that will help? Well, you and Ruth Clark, the daughter of that big motor magnet, C.G. Clark, are on pretty good terms, aren't you? Why, yes. Ruth and I went to school together. Why? Here's why. If you can get Ruth to get you in to see her father now, before it's too late, we may be able to save the day. And Bill's neck. What am I supposed to do after I get in? Here, show him these plans. It's the gas feeder. If you can sell him on the idea of manufacturing it, Bill could be flagged out of the race before that temporary mounting should blow. It's a deal. Give me those plans. You just watch. He won't make more than one more circle on the track. I'll see to that. Bill, still madly kicking the gas pedal, was now unconsciously wiping oil off his face. Suddenly, he jerked himself back into stark reality. The oil he's wiping off is thin. Too thin. Gasoline! On the stands, Fred saw the thin shred of smoke trailing the bluebird. Terror gripping his heart, he called to Anne to hurry. In another moment... But Anne hadn't wasted any time. Fred's nervous, scanning eyes finally located her, down talking to the starter. He also saw the bluebird, never slowing, round the turn and coming rocketing up the straightaway in front of the stands. Just as he crossed the line, the checkered flag waved him out of the race. The other cars shot right past him for the final lap. Bill leaped out of the bluebird and took the situation in at a glance. Of course, just like a woman. Anne became nervous, couldn't stand a little smoke, so she had him flagged out. She didn't care if she was throwing all of his hard work out of the window. Well, Anne, you did a beautiful job. I couldn't have done better myself. And you claim you care for me. Why, all you care about is yourself. See here, see here. This young lady just saved your life. A most ungrateful exhibition, young man. A most ungrateful exhibition. Why, Mr. Clark, I... Oh, what's the use? She probably queered that too. At least if she let me finish the race, I'd be in that much. Oh, well. Young man, this young lady just explained the fine points of your new gas feeder to me. I'd like to have you drop into my office this afternoon, if you will, and we can come to terms. What? Why didn't you tell me this before? Whee! Oh, Anne, forgive me! To the devil with the race! Oh, uh, pardon me? But do remember me. I'm Fred, your mechanic? Fred, you old son of a gun. Isn't it wonderful? It certainly is. The darn thing works. You did manage to gain a whole lap on those birds. They all had to go around an extra lap to compete for second place. And that was Burning Rubber. Ram, what did you think of it? My first impression was the illustration is excellent. Uh, and it the tone of the illustration ties directly and fits perfectly with the language used in the actual story. So I thought that was uh, that was the first thing that struck me. It's interesting because I think what it is is that it's a very simple illustration. It's just one image to go along with this prose story. But it has that kind of workmanship of commercial art almost in, in that era, which was just really kind of superior. I mean, those people were artists who just happened to be doing, you know, a, a more commercial kind of art, but it has, it has a lot of dynamism. It uh, really, it's a clear reference to what happens in the story. Absolutely. And I think even without the illustration, had I read this story I think I would have pictured that style and era of car anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think the two things really do fit together. Well, it's, inter it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was wondering, you know, I did a little bit of research for it and I was thinking the 1939 and it was, you know, they were still driving these kind of cars back then, um, especially in, in these kind of circuit races. And I looked it up and apparently there was a car called the Bluebird 
Oh. Yeah, it it actually the car first started hitting the track in the in 1920, but mm-hmm. it was a Sunbeam 350 HP and it was the first in a series of bluebirds actually that was used to break land speed records. Uh, wow. by Malcolm Campbell. I don't know if if that name is familiar to you or not. No. Uh, but apparently he that was his thing. <laughs> he would he would uh, get cars and he would break land speed records. And the first time the Sunbeam was raced was at the Brooklyn's Racing Circuit in 1920, uh, and it kept breaking records. And so Campbell bought, borrowed the car for the Saltburn Speed Trials in 1922, and he set a record for um, 138 miles per hour, which wow. you know, doesn't sound like that much to us then, but at the time, you know, that was absolutely that was fast. Yeah. He loved the car, <laughs> so he bought it. He renamed it the Bluebird, and then in 1925. He set another speed record for 150 miles an hour, uh, wow. which was the first time a car had ever gone that fast. A car had never a car had never gone faster than 150 miles per hour before. Yeah. And then in that same exhibition, he would break his own record and set a, a speed record of 152. Later, after Campbell was done with it, I guess the Bluebird returned to the racing circuit. It survived crashes. At one in one race, its tires were ripped from the axles and actually killed somebody in the audience yeah it was terrible uh there was a thrown rod uh but now since then it's been restored and the engine actually they they replaced the engine and it it runs and it's in the national motor museum in uh england that's so cool yeah and i don't know if this is the actual car but i would think you know with just with the timeline people probably i would assume that this guy knew about the bluebird and i i can't help but think it's a reference yeah, you know, and that makes sense too. Just uh, like the concept of a mechanic developing a new technology and selling it to like a big motor magnet. Mm-hmm. I don't think that happens now, but at the time, I think that was a very realistic detail in the story because I think the cliche was win on Sunday, sell it on Monday. So, <laughs> you know, I, I do think the that is a a touch of realism as well that a mechanic would come up with something and then like, you know, one of the big auto people would be like, Hey, we could use that in our production line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know what? I don't know. I know almost nothing about motors and auto uh, repair. I don't I don't even have the words for what it, what it is, but yeah. Is that basically a fuel injector that they're talking about? That was the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, this sounds like a early description of fuel injection. Yes. Okay. Because I, I thought that was interesting. And I also thought one of the things, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying before, is that he wants to test out this new fuel, fuel injector that they came up with, that they invented. But it's is it me or is it crazy that they would want to test that on the track? <laughs> no, that's not crazy <laughs> at all. <laughs> really? Oh, no. No, um... Like I said, I grew up with those uh, in the early 80s, that dune buggy crew that was drag racing, and they would be scrambling to the last second and be all excited all week long about this new piece they have for the turbocharger. And often um, they wouldn't even get a test run just based on time limitations. And so when the, you know, when the lights came down and the green light came on and he punched it, that was sometimes the first time and they didn't know what was going to happen. So testing on the track, I think, who knows, in 2019, I bet that's a lot less likely with technology, Uh but back in the day, especially, 
uh, I think a lot of on-track testing could have happened. That is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. So, yeah, that's why I'm glad you're here, Ram. <laughs> I, need, I need your perspective because, to me, that sounds insane <laughs> to do that. Especially when you're dealing with gasoline. Yeah. I and that. that was, you know, that was like the dramatic uh, build in this story, though. Like, oh, no, if there's a gas leak, he's a goner. Right. And uh, that's true, you know? I mean, I'm sure that more than one engine went up in flames in the early testing of fuel injection, if that's indeed what this is. I mean, I'm just, I'm guessing. And not only is the car starting to smoke, but gas is actually being sprayed into his face. Yes, which would be (laughs) terrifying. And, I mean, this doesn't make me an expert, but I have, during a race, been more than once had gas spraying in my face. Oh, wow. When I lost the overflow tube on my gas tank, so off my gas cap. So I have suffered from being covered in gasoline, but I wasn't worried about (laughs) bursting into flames because I was on a a motorcycle in the woods, usually in the rain or in the mud or something. But uh, I wasn't worried about bursting into flames. I was just worried about, um, you know, staying conscious. I was going to say, Ram, you know, that uh, being in the forest doesn't make you fireproof. <laughs> you no, no, that's a good point. I mean, if there had been like a guy at the pit stop smoking a cigarette out of it. You know, that's good to know because I thought, okay, that's just something put in there for dramatic tension. But yeah, it's because you see these old uh, film reels of races and, you, you know, everyone's covered in oil and, and soot and everything else. But, you know, you, you kind of think getting doused with gasoline would be enough to go into the pit, right? Yeah, I think normally under most circumstances when there is gasoline spraying on you, you should get the vehicle shut off as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, I think, the uh, intelligent thing to do. <laughs> Whether or not in the heat of the moment racing you do that, uh, I'm not sure. All right. What, what, did you, what did you think of the story itself? I thought it was... Uh, uh, what I liked about it is that it the ending did surprise me a little bit because even though um, it was obviously – I didn't know the specific year it was written when I first read it. Mm-hmm. But I just knew from the illustration and the language and the, you know, the, the description of the actual racing, I guessed the uh, era pretty well. Um, but I thought it was like almost like you know in any um, – uh, spoof of a police show when it's the detective's last day and it's his last case. <laughs> right. And if he can just crack that last case, he's heading to the Bahamas in the morning. I thought that it was like an early version of that mm-hmm. and that he was going to go up in flames. And then the irony was going to be that CG Clark wanted to buy his, right. his Injection system, but oh, he went up in flames. So the fact that it that it all worked out, I was like, oh, okay. It seemed a little more like a noir, like he was. Yeah, and that and that would make sense because you know these early golden age comics would ha- often have these short prose stories because in those days they were still making that transition from pulp magazines, ah, which were mostly you know crime and some romance, but mostly crime magazines. In, along the lines of the shadow, that sort of thing. Okay. So it would have made perfect sense for this story to have a tragic ending. But it's it actually ends pretty happily. Every, everyone lives, and they manage to sell their, their uh, guest feeder. And she was, I was willing to um, suspend my disbelief on this point, but she was able to run down there and explain that design to this guy pretty quick. Right. 
<laughs> just the fact that he was even there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was convenient that he was there and that he was just open-minded to this this technological breakthrough and just like, quick, you need to buy it before he burns up. Yeah, I mean, Fred, Fred the mechanic is able to find her in the crowd, yes. give her the plans, <laughs> she goes to C.G. Clark and goes to C.G. Clark, gives him the plan, explains it all, and, you know, this is all like within a lap, if I'm yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it was within one lap, yes. <laughs> that happened quick. Yeah, and the the whole everything kind of happens quick, and it has to because it's only a two page story. Yes, but a lot happens. A, a lot does happen. It's paced very well, and it's a very quick, easy read for sure. It is, and for my part, it was fun. Yes, and the the ending, you, as you mentioned, you had that that uh, that surprise of, uh, and it took me. I actually had to read it twice before because the first time I read it, I thought, well, that was kind of abrupt. It just kind of ends. But I had missed the fact that he won the race by an entire lap because of his gas feeder. He was so far ahead that he took the checkered flag a full lap early. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and that completely went over my head the first time. And then I was like, oh, so not only is it a happy ending that he sold his gas feeder, he also wins the race. But it seemed like he thought that he hadn't won or didn't realize because he was complaining that that she had pulled him off prematurely. Right. Right. But then quickly changed his tune when he realized that he was now going to be able to sell the plan and retire. And yeah, he'd better. He was pretty crappy to Anne at one point. At that point. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Man, you just need to save your bacon in more ways than one. And now you're giving her crap about it. I don't. I know, but I thought that was actually um, a bit of a realistic detail because if you, it, it turns out he won and he his race wasn't interrupted. But I'm assuming he must have felt like he was getting pulled off early, and that might be your reaction. I mean, maybe yeah. not to treat your partner, but right. to be like upset, like, "Hey, come on! I just, you know, I need to get to the finish line." Yeah, no, no, it, it totally made sense, and also it kind of makes sense. Sadly enough, it makes sense, and those weren't exactly enlightened times. No, <laughs> so, no <they> weren't. <laughs> you know, so I could totally see uh, a boyfriend being mad at his girlfriend for saving his life. That, that, yes, it seems totally on track. And there was that great line about you know Anne sitting in the stands, uh, watching the bluebird madly rush on in a meaningless velocity, mm-hmm. or so it seemed to her. But I think <laughs> that's you know that's probably what a lot of people think of racing. So she's actually you know that I think in the context of the story is supposed to just make it seem like, oh, she's really not that into this. She's just worried about the safety of her man. But then if you think about it, what is the point of racing? (laughs) You're just going in an oval, I think, in this case. uh, And, you know, you're putting your life on the line to do that just to be the first person to get to the checkered flag. It can easily be thought of as a mad, you know, madly rushing on into meaningless velocity. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned that because for such a short story, there are some great lines in this. Uh, I was especially taken by the description of how Bill feels while he's racing. Yeah. You know, that his whole body is taut and he's basically almost becoming one with the car. Mm-hmm. Did that sound accurate to you? Did that, did that remind you of your own feelings when you were raced? Yes. And um, I... It's almost, I don't know if there's a term for it, when you think of something mechanical as almost a 
living thing. But I, you know, I've actually mentioned to people that certain machines, I think, actually have souls, which makes me sound completely insane. <laughs> I realize that. But like a lot of pro uh, motorcycle racers, like I'm talking about the highest level, they will buy the motorcycle at, if they won a world championship on it yeah. to keep, you know, in their personal museum. So I don't own any of the bikes that I raced on, but the connection to them is a real thing for sure. And like my current motorcycles, I love them so much that if people could see in my brain and see how much I love them, they'd probably take a few steps back and cut a wide path around me. <laughs> well, I, I imagine that that's even more so when you work on a, on a vehicle yourself, because you know, you're putting, you're putting something of yourself into it. Yeah. And I was my own mechanic for a lot of stuff back then. And, uh, you know, if I did something wrong and it broke, it sucked. But I was like, well, I'm the one that did it. But then when everything was working right, it did. It, there's definitely that feeling of like becoming one with your machine for sure. And you have to trust it because you're putting yourself at, you know, pretty great risk. In the story, you know, it's obviously it would have been, it was obviously worth taking that risk to Bill. Even yeah. Though, you know, he was getting pretty close to failure. You know, catastrophic <laughs> failure. <laughs> yes, he was. That's... I think Fred would have felt bad. <laughs> yeah, Fred, Fred seems like a good friend, you know, but yeah. he, he also still said, oh, okay, Bill, you, you take the car out yourself. Which I, was, I wasn't sure about that. Like, maybe that was a thing where the mechanic rode along. I've never heard of that. But uh, I can't imagine that is a common thing. But maybe it was. Maybe the mechanic wanted to be right there on the scene hearing and because they didn't have uh, automated software technology yet to uh, track, you know, every RPM and GPS, knowing exactly where it is on the track and all that stuff. So maybe that was how the mechanic was in touch with everything that was happening at that time. Yeah, I, I caught that too because I was thinking, well, wouldn't that, wouldn't that extra weight make the car slower for one thing? Yes, for uh, sure. And also, I, I like you, I had never heard of any kind of racing being done with the driver and essentially an R2-D2 riding shotgun to take care of things. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd, you'd like to say about this story? I mean, like we said, it's it's even titled a short, short story. And it is a very it, short story. It's a very short story. Uh, but like we've been talking about, I mean, a lot gets packed in there, um, which is perfect because, you know, if you were testing a new fuel injection system on a supercharged engine and you were a whole lap ahead of everyone, that would all be happening pretty quickly. So I think that that intensity is caught in just the uh, the prose of this story. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for uh, doing this with me, Ram. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it, Max. Thanks, man. So not only are you a former racer, you're also a drummer with, I am. with the mystery achievement. So where can people find you online? Uh, good question. I would say... Uh, <laughs> Oh, let's see here. Uh, we have a band camp. We have a Facebook. You know, all the usual stuff. Okay, and the name of the band is The Mystery Achievement? Yes. Right. And you, you do have uh, an album out right now. Yes. Our self-titled debut that we did with uh, Chris Frenchy Smith over at The Bubble a couple years back. Uh, yeah, I really am happy with the job he did on that. So that was a pretty big thrill for me personally getting to work with him. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and I can, I can uh, personally say that it's an excellent album. And that will do it for Burning Rubber and this installment of A Marvelous Anniversary. Tomorrow, Siskoid and Nathaniel Wayne will wrap things up with The Adventures of Kazar the Great, so be sure to come back for that.
Thanks again to Ram Zimmerman for joining me. And of course, thanks to our listeners who've made the third anniversary of the Fire and Water Podcast Network possible. You can find Plasticast, The Mirror Factory, and all of our other great podcasts at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Be sure to leave a comment. We love to hear from you. And of course, happy 80th anniversary, Marvel. In America, the dirt track is the meeting place of the speed demons. In old horse parks, at county fairs, anywhere there's a mile of oval track, the throttle pushes have a field day. Typically American prize money is the big lure here, with a bonus for the daredevil who sets the pace. Lap after lap, it's a merry-go-round of dirt and dust, and how nerves can stand the strain is nothing short of a major miracle.